Um, so we're going to get started tonight just with a few things for review first. And um, that I want to do something, may, I don't know how different it, it really is, but it's, it's certainly um, something that at least help us prepare for the next section of text that we're going to be going through in, uh, in second Samuel, as we get to kind of really the last kind of half of second Samuel, even though it's a little more than half of the book, it's still the last really section of the story before we get into, um, into first Kings. But, uh, just as, just by way of review, you remember over the last couple of chapters, some really significant events in David's life have happened. Uh, one in chapter eleven, he had an affair with Bathsheba, and then and and got her pregnant, basically, and then sought to kill her husband. Uh, to yeah, to kill her husband Uriah by bringing him home from battle. Uh, well, first sought to cover his tracks, and then sought to kill Uriah by sending him back into battle with his own death warrant, moving him to the front lines. And last week, what we talked about was chapter twelve, where the prophet Nathan goes in to uh, confront David. And obviously one point of review here is that David's affair with Bathsheba, Bathsheba was, was uh, brought, was the Lord was displeased with it and was very angry with it and sent Nathan the prophet to David to give him insight into what uh, God was really thinking about this whole matter. And so Nathan goes in and, puts to David a parable where David ends up condemning himself in the parable unwittingly. And then Nathan kind of pulls the cloak back on the parable, interprets it for David and says, you are the guy that I'm talking about. You're the, you're the man. And David then realizes the sin that he's committed by doing this to Bathsheba and Uriah and sort of destroying their family and killing Uriah in the process and how he has sinned against the Lord. And this has brought a great, you know, fall really on the, the kingdom itself. And, and we also saw as, you know, point two of our review that David himself was delivered from, um, you know, the, I, I guess you would say delivered from death he had every right to be put to death at the moment uh, by the Lord or by Nathan or by, you know, any any form of a government that sought to be um, to follow the Lord. Yet the Lord delivered him from that, but as but did carry out a punishment on him that he would lose his son and did lose his son. And so David's son that Bathsheba was pregnant with did die. And then he later conceived Solomon through Bathsheba um, as he took her to be his wife after uh, killing her husband. So what we also saw as point three of this review is that David's sin was so, was, was so uh, tragic that it, it depicted really a fall of the kingdom of God, another fall of the kingdom of God kind of mirroring Adam's fall. We're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight, but um, David is the spearhead of the kingdom of God has now transgressed God's law, fallen yet again. And similar to Adam's fall in Genesis three, followed by Cain's sin in Genesis four, David's fall is going to result in um, 
the death of, of a son. In fact, four sons are going to die um, because of David's sin, really. And, you know, the, the way these stories have been put together by the author, the way these, this narrative has been put together, it seems very intentional that the author wants you to see that and wants us to understand that. We're going to talk a lot more about that tonight. Um, David and his sons are given counsel on a number of occasions, and all of it seems to be, uh, seems to turn against them at some point. And we're going to see a little bit more of that on into the future in subsequent weeks. Um, before we before we get to some of the more theological aspects of tonight, we, I've kind of broken tonight's study really down into three parts. And notice there's not a ton of scripture that we're going to be covering tonight. It's it, We're more going to be talking about some theological concepts that we need to kind of drill into our minds to help us understand what's coming down the pike. Uh, as we look at chapters 13 to 20, I debated on how to arrange this, whether we do 13 to 20 first and then talk about it, or we talk about it and then do 13 to 20. And so I decided um, to talk about it first, do 13 to 20, and then probably review at the end of 13 to 20, just to kind of solidify uh, this picture that's being developed for us in uh, the scripture that, that, we're, that we're coming to. But essentially, before we get into a lot of that, we need to close out chapter 12 by seeing how the, the author uh, ends it and what, story, what narrative he puts forward for us. You, you remember that um, at the beginning of chapter 11, David is marching into Rabbah. Well, at the end of chapter 12, we come back to that and following his fall and then obviously his repentance that happens after that. In the text, it's just very simple, I have sinned, but then we also get Psalm 51 and several other places in Scripture where we realize David was repentant for his sins, but following his, his fall and repentance, um, Joab issues a call. Joab, remember, is David's general, issues a call to David, and he says, hey, come and, and finish off the Amorites. Let's look at that passage there, one of the few verses we've actually got here in Second uh, Samuel 12. 26 to 31, it says, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. And now then uh, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against um, the city and take it, uh, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown from the king and from his head, the weight of its talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought, uh, he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did all to, to all the city of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So David goes in and he conquers this city. And after Joab puts out a call to him. Now, this sounds kind of strange to us there in, uh, what is it, probably, I guess, 20, verse 29, uh, where Joab says, says to him something kind of strange, you know, come and, uh, you know, 
take this city lest I take it and, and call it by my name. It's, it's pretty common for a king to strike the finishing blow on a city, and it would have been normal. And as we saw at the beginning of chapter 11, a time normally reserved for kings to go off to battle, David stayed at home. It was quite common for the king to go into battle and to fight, and particularly to, to strike the finishing blow. David was rare in this instance where he stayed at home, and that ended up getting him into trouble. But um, normally to the victor goes the spoils. And so what Joab is saying is if I'm going to have victory over this city, then the spoils are going to be mine. But if, if you want to, these people are ready for you to take them. So just come in and lead the army on its final charge and you, you know, have the city subjugated to you. And so David does that. He strikes the finishing blow and then he subjugates Amnon, uh, I'm sorry, Amon, uh, and and imposes forced labor on it. So he puts all of them to work. And again, we remember for the last couple of weeks, we've we've talked about this, that um, that David expanding the kingdom of God is a good thing. And we see that in the text of uh, uh, that, it, that it is a really good thing. However, I would ask if you were reading chapter 11, where all of this started, chapter 11, they go into Rabbah, David stays home. From, the, from that moment, the beginning of chapter 11, all the way down to the very end of chapter 12 is filled with David's affair, his murder, and his confrontation by Nathan the prophet. After you read this, how do you feel about Israel's victory? Let's, let's say that you were really excited about what God was doing in and through David in his kingdom. Then you take a pause and you hear about this grievous and awful sin that David has committed. And then it ends with David marching into Rabbah and killing the people there, the Ammonites. How do you feel about that? Well, probably we as the reader should be feeling a sense of despair about it all because there's more weight on this with in this battle there's more weight put on the disobedience and lack of holiness of Yahweh's anointed there's almost two whole chapters in the middle of this battle dedicated to David's sin his disobedience and his lack of holiness and so it's supposed to make us feel that this battle that David has won is sort of meaningless. Uh, I, I'm a huge baseball fan, or I should say I like baseball. In fact, I'd, I'd watch any sport right now, I think, just about. But, um, <laughs> but uh, any live sport. But I'm, I'm a big baseball fan. And I remember growing up um, toward, I guess I was probably in high school at the time, uh, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were in the middle of a uh, tremendous home run battle. And I remember late September watching Ranger games and they would say, you know, we're, we're keeping an eye on the St. Louis Cardinals game. We're keeping an eye on the Chicago Cubs game. Uh, as Mark McGuire gets closer to Roger Maris's home run record, we're, we're going to cut away and show you his at bat, you know? And so they would cut away when Mark McGuire got up to the plate, they would show it in full screen and they would show the Rangers game in the bottom 
you know, corner in the picture in picture or whatever. And, and, and I remember watching this home run battle and it was just enthralling. The whole country was tuned into the base, but to baseball games, even people that didn't normally watch baseball were tuned in because these guys were hitting, you know, bombs like crazy. And of course, you know, Mark McGuire ends up breaking the record and, and he hit 70 on the season. Sammy Sosa hit 66 on the season and everybody was just, man, that's incredible. Two guys break the record in, in one, in one season. And then all of the steroid stuff started to really come out and we started to learn about all the steroid issues that were happening in baseball. And then there was a big scandal and then there was a lot of denial and then there was a lot of this, that, and the other. And now how do we feel about, and you may not be a baseball fan, but how do you feel about the home run records now as they stand now? Uh, Barry Bonds has 73. He was obviously on steroids at the time when he did that too. And, uh, you know, so you look at the home run record now and you're like, no one, for one, no one who's not on steroids is ever going to touch those, those records again. And so the home run record just really kind of has to us a feeling of who cares anymore about it. It doesn't really matter. It's not the uh, interesting thing to tune into on, in baseball to see it happen every year, or see a chase every year. And it, it sort of spoiled that for us. When we get to this point in the text, because of the sin we've just read about, and because of the prophecy that Nathan has given to uh, David, we, we, we have this sense of despair about the kingdom of God that, as led by David, that, it, well, who really cares anymore? Um, if David can't do it, nobody can kind of, kind of feeling that we have, even as David um, defeats the Ammonites, who is a, a major foe of the Israelites. Well, what this then leads us to is really the driving point of first and second Samuel, that first and second Samuel is really gearing you up for before we get into first and second Kings, which, and, and really the rest of the old Testament which is that all human leadership is flawed, that there's not a human leader that's going to be in place to execute any kind of justice or lead God's kingdom, spearhead God's kingdom, that's not going to be an incredibly flawed individual. There's not one of us probably who's ever been a part of a, 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 an organization, be it a church or any other kind of organization, that did not have unrealistic expectations of its leader. And at some point or another, either get, uh, get sucked into the leadership or get pushed away and kind of, uh, you know, have a sour taste in our mouth because of the leadership. It's not long before we realize no matter where we are, no matter who we're led by, if we're led by a human, that leadership is going to be flawed in some way. And, it should tell us in First and Second Samuel that actually we're flawed too, um, and all of us are flawed. And if we were leading, we would also step on the rake a number of times, and uh, just as David has. And so it, it sort of exposes this idea that all human leadership is flawed. We were we were seeing Samuel even had his missteps. Eli before him had his missteps. Certainly Eli's sons and Samuel's sons. 
Saul comes along and we go, man, this guy's a doofus. Can we get a new guy? And then we get, we get God's appointed man. David is coming in and we have this, you know, kind of hope. And then here in the middle of second Samuel, we get disappointed yet again. And it's, it's the biblical author's way of, of pulling back the curtain and going, yeah, spoiler alert. We're all flawed. And every one of us is going to be in that, in that sense. But what it also does is it makes us lift our eyes to wait for the messianic king that's coming to actually establish. Because what we have to realize is, yes, if a human king is going to sit on the throne, he is going to step, he or really she, for that matter, we see in the judges, Deborah and various others, um, they're going to step on the landmine at some point. They're going to, things are going to blow up. They're going to miss, they're going to be, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to sin. So what that means for us is that we have to have someone who is divine, who doesn't have that kind of nature that would lead them into uh, sin. However, this is a a man-appointed task, a a God-appointed task given to men, I should say, that uh, Adam was put over the, as the spearhead of his kingdom, Adam was given the charge, and it's the sons of Adam, as it were, that are going to be the ones that are responsible uh, to carry it out. So the person that we're waiting on has to be both human and divine at the same time. Divine in order to accomplish the task, but human so that he can. the task is actually fit for him. And so it, it, this, both the Samuels should cause us to draw our eyes that way toward the skies, as it were, as we wait for a a Messiah King, a Messianic King, uh, to come. Now that concludes chapter 12. And what I want to do now is really kind of take a look at a broad overview of chapters 13 to 20. And we're going to do that in just a couple of ways. We're going to look at the theology going on in them. And then next week we're going to we're going to take it, you know, chapter by chapter through 13 to 20 as, as we have with the rest of the study. But I, I want to do this because I think it's really important that we see that there are some really important themes that the author is uh, of First and Second Samuel is pointing you to, is drawing your attention to. Um, we, we notice things by pattern and we, we look for God's hand in the way uh, history develops in front of us. Uh, Let me give you an idea of what I mean. Which one of us has not looked at the culture around us right now and said, man, when I read Romans 1, although they knew God, they neither acknowledged him as God or gave him thanks, uh, he gave them over to a depraved mind, doing what, uh, doing things that ought not be done. Their women exchanged natural relations with men for unnatural relations. Their men, likewise, uh, natural relations with women for unnatural relations. Um, and we see the human race as a whole fall into all kinds of sin and debauchery. Which one of us hasn't looked at that passage and gone, man, I feel like that could be written today about American society that I'm living in currently, right? We look at society and we see 
God has done this in the past. And we see that pattern evident in society today. And so it brings us a good deal of comfort because we think to ourselves, that must mean that God is still on the throne, that he's still governing history, and that he's still uh, governing by the same tools that he's used in the past. Uh, I'll give you another example. There's a passage in uh, Isaiah chapter 3 where God, through the prophet Isaiah, tells Judah that he's going to judge them, the kingdom of Judah. And one way that he's going to judge them, he says, is he's going to make infants rule over them, that uh, children are going to be their princes, their governors, their rulers. And what he means by that is not not necessarily literal children, although that probably how it would come about. The king would die at an early age and, and then you'd be left with a prince who was very young. But what it also meant was that immature people were going to be your leaders. And that was going to be one way that, that I'm going to judge you. Now, you read that and you go, wow, <laughs> I feel like that's written about America today. Uh, and in fact, I know that one way God has judged uh, people throughout history, judged kingdoms throughout history, was that he has given them tyrants and immature people and anyone other than a wise person to rule over them. That was one means of judgment for sin. And so what it does is it, it, it confirms to us uh, that the patterns that we saw in the past are still prevalent today. And God, that means God is still active today. I've said before is a quote from one of the, my favorite professors who, who said um, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he's too created to do the same thing the same way twice. And th- what a lot of what that means really is that when we look in the past, we can see God's God's habits, his patterns of both judgment and blessing. And we can look at our own day and we can say, I'm confident God is still on the throne because he is still doing some of the same things that he's done in the past. And uh, that even America's depravity that it's fallen into is evidence that, yes, uh, we are under the judgment of God as as a nation, but that brings me great comfort knowing that God is currently doing something about it. Okay, now I say all of that to say when the biblical writers are putting these narratives together, it's more than just a history. A history would be David did this in this year, and then this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened. Because the idea is to give you a chronological retelling of all that happened in David's life. Instead, the author's intent is to show you that God is on the throne and that he is the one that is governing history. Evidenced in David's life is this pattern that has uh, presented itself that's very akin to patterns we find uh, God judging in, God judging people in, in, the, in the rest of Old Testament history. And so what we're going to see, what we're going to look at is two different sort of parallels that are present in the text. The first 
is how David's sin with Bathsheba is very similar, and, and David's story is very similar to what happens with Absalom that, come, that comes next in chapter 13 and follow all the way through chapter 20. And then we're going to see how David's, king, the fall of David's kingdom is a, and, and all the events that happen subsequent to it are similar to the fall of Adam's kingdom and the subsequent events that happen in the rest of the book of Genesis, that there are some very strange parallels. And I don't think strange meaning, uh, wow, look at that. It's just coincidence. No, no, no. I think the biblical writer is trying to bring these things to, to light for us to see the fall of David's kingdom was very similar to the fall of Adam's kingdom. And I want to show you those parallels. Okay. So, um, Nathan's prophecy comes to David. You'll remember in chapter 12, verse 10, uh, Nathan, the prophet comes to David and he says to him, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. That's the Lord speaking through Nathan and have taken a wife, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite to be your wife. So Nathan prophesies the sword would never depart from the house of David. And from that moment on, um, David's sons are thrown into a rebellion, starting with Absalom. And it begins to work its way out in such a way that the sins of David are essentially repeated and exaggerated by his sons. Uh, And I know we touched on a little bit of this, or I touched on a little bit of this last week, but I want to just kind of drill it home a little bit further and spend a little bit more time on it on it this week. But they're, they're going to be exaggerated. Uh, a lot of David's sins and things like that are going to be repeated and, and exaggerated by uh, his sons. Um, overall, the storyline of chapters 13 to 20 is very much like uh, the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, I want to show you how that is. So the blank there is David and then Bathsheba is the other one, or David and Bathsheba um, together, because I want to go to the next slide here. Um, First, you remember in David's case, a sexual sin is then followed by a murder and then followed by someone coming to David in the prophet of Nathan, telling him a parable that tricked him into passing judgment upon himself, right? That's the, that's the pattern of 11 and 12. Um, but what do we see in Absalom's story? Let me just walk through a broad overview of Absalom's story in case you're unfamiliar with it so we can kind of get this in our minds. But um, Absalom is one of David's sons. Amnon is David's oldest son. And Tamar is the sister of Absalom. So Amnon, the oldest son, then Absalom, Tamar is a sister of Absalom. Amnon sees Tamar and thinks she's very attractive and is advised that he can kind of in, set up a trap, as it were, and essentially rape her, and he does that. And Absalom is irate about it. He is furious. And so Absalom devises this more or less a family reunion. You think your family reunions are bad? This family reunion was awful. Absalom arranged it, brought everyone together. And when everyone was there, had Amnon killed. Um, And 
so because he had he had raped Tamar. But then Absalom becomes fearful that he is going to uh, die. So we have the sexual sin that happens first. Then we have the murder that happens after that. Absalom is afraid that he's going to die at, at David's hands, that David's going to kill him because he struck down the heir apparent, uh, um, David's firstborn. And so Absalom flees. He takes off on the run. And um, he stays gone for a couple of years. And eventually Joab sort of convinces, or really kind of arranges a, a, a trick for David to see just how tragic it is that he has caused his other son to run and flee from him and that he should put away his anger. And he does this by hiring a lady, uh, a wise lady to come in and essentially tell David a parable that uh, tricks David yet again into condemning himself and his own actions. And then he realizes what he's done and he brings Absalom back. So then we have the parable that follows after that, that causes David to then bring Absalom back into Jerusalem in safety. Though they don't really talk to each other, they're still keeping each other at arm's distance. David is fine with Absalom living in Jerusalem. He's not going to kill him. Well, in the midst of all of this, it takes Absalom about a year or so, and he uh, gets together people around him that support him. And eventually he ends up overthrowing David of, in a way and driving David away from Jerusalem and garnering a lot of support from people that had previously supported David. And so David is on the run and Absalom has sort of taken on, ta- taken on the throne as it were. And, uh, and David is on the run from Absalom. You'll remember Psalm chapter three or Psalm three is, is the one that, that David is on the run from Absalom. We talked about a a few weeks ago in, uh, on Sunday morning. And so here we have a King's son. Uh, he fled the land to escape the wrath of the King. He sojourns with the Gentiles. That's, uh, uh, Absalom sojourns with the Gentiles, the Arameans and Gesher. And then he returns to Jerusalem. Well, as it turns out, that is uh, remarkably similar to, um, to David's own, uh, own story. And uh, it's really sort of a repetition of his own history. I think you probably didn't get that all, did you? Let me get back there. Uh, king, wrath of the king, Gentiles, and Jerusalem. Um, it's actually a, a little bit of a repetition of David's own history, where he is adopted as the king's son, um, Saul's son. He flees the wrath of the king. He sojourns amongst the Gentiles before eventually being crowned in Hebron uh, as as the heir apparent. Um, So let me just kind of go through this. Um, We got repetition here is the next one. It's a a, Absalom's life history was clearly a repetition of David's own history. However, there's a big exception to all of this that um, you'll, and you probably already identified it. You're like, wait a minute. Absalom was not quite the person we saw in David, right? David, we saw presented himself with honor. David was a man of integrity uh, oh, he, he was crowned in Hebron. I, I forgot to put that up there. Um, he was he ruled with integrity. He uh, he had uh, class. 
he was struck to the heart anytime something came against Saul. David, it doesn't seem, is really like Absalom at all. And you're right. Uh, he, he's really not. In fact, Absalom would be something of a photo negative of David. Their stories parallel, but the colors are opposite. Uh, he's a counterfeit image of his father. So here you have, if you just think about this for just a second, here you have the new Adam has, in David, has fallen. And what results, but that the heir apparent, now Absalom, since Amnon is, Amnon is killed, um, the heir apparent is a fallen version of David. He's a photo negative, a counterfeit image of his father who would mimic the story, yet absolutely deserve to die. Um, whereas David is running from, uh, from Saul on righteous grounds. David is, is, hasn't done anything. Uh, Saul thinks that he's done uh, something, but, he, but he, David hasn't really done anything. Um, Absalom committed murder. Absalom absolutely killed Amnon and had a right, David had a right, to, to strike him down uh, as just retribution for his sin. David didn't do anything like that. Um, Absalom is that photo negative. It's a, it's a, we don't even have negatives anymore, but you, you remember what they look like. I'm sure most of you on this will remember uh, I'll probably have to explain it to a couple of you, uh, but uh, but imagine a film strip. It's the colors isn't quite right, and 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 so that's that's sort of Absalom. He mirrors the story of David, but he he's the fallen version. In fact, Absalom is the man that Saul thought David was. Now think about that statement for just a minute. Absalom is the man, or was the man that Saul thought. David was. Um, Saul has in his mind that David is out to get his throne, that he is his enemy, that he is uh, he's going to rally all the troops against him and that he's going to take over the throne. Well, that isn't what David was, but that is what Absalom is. And it's evidenced by his actual actions. That's exactly what he did. All the fears that Saul had about David actually are realized by David in Absalom. So uh, in every way, this is presented to us as a fallen kingdom. Um, and so in chapters 13 to 20, the antics of Absalom are central in these chapters. We're going to talk all about what Absalom did and how he did it and what David did in response and all of that. But this section is also going to highlight a lot of things that, that David did, several things that David did. And it's going to bring those things back to mind. For one, David's sin with Bathsheba was clearly an abuse of his authority as king. And all of the events um, throughout these, these chapters, 13 to 21, uh, confirm that though his adultery was private, and though he thought it was it was concealed, it was not only brought to light, but had enormous public consequences. And all of these things are a consequence of David's sin. And, and then because of his sin, 
David essentially loses his kingdom for a time. He's on the run from Absalom for quite some time. And so Absalom moves in, takes over David's concubines, um, just as David had taken Saul's concubines when, da- when Saul died, right? Uh, Absalom moves in and actually takes David's concubines while David is still alive. Um, and in the end, uh, um, David's kingdom is going to be revived, but it's not until he loses many of his sons in the process. In fact, we talked about last week, there's a fourfold retribution that happens to David. He loses four of his sons uh, because of all this. So David suffers uh, grievous personal consequences from his sin. That's really kind of the second part of it. He, there's there's a tremendous personal consequences from his sin. On several occasions, David is going to be manipulated into the middle of conflicts amongst his sons. And he's even going to kind of um, unconsciously enable his sons to act against him. Um, after chapter 12, this is fascinating to me. After chapter 12, we don't see David fight anymore. He'll, Joab will go do the fighting for him after this. We don't really see David marching into battle anymore. We see him dying as a withered old man in first Kings. Um, David lets Joab take care of a lot of battles uh, that are threatening him. Absalom uh, is, is not least of which is one that Joab's going to take care of. Um, there's lots of e- events where, where, where this, this happens. Um, the, the third thing is that, that though David was, was forgiven and though he regained his kingdom, he never recovers his vigor. He never gets back to the David of old. He essentially loses all initiative and is really spent the rest of his, his kingdom just being a, kind of more or less a, a, a feeble king, just reacting to things that are going on and not, not actually leading. He's, He's um, just sort of this pitiable figure, uh, an, an empty robe, an old man shivering in his bed as he dies in First Kings. It's just, it's the decline in every way of his kingdom. So what it reminds us of, again, as we kind of look to the skies for the messianic king to come, is even, even us, as we think about privacy, particularly leaders, of anything. This, this would apply directly. If I was speaking to a room full of pastors, oh my goodness. Um, we think that our sins might remain private, but even if our sins are never disclosed and they're never made public to anyone, our ability as leaders or our ability even as Christians to lead our family, to pray, to read the scriptures, to grow as a Christian, it withers on the vine because of this sin that is just harbored in our heart and hidden from view. Um, and, and that is clearly evident in David's kingdom, David's reign. So that's one part of it, is how David's uh, sins and, and his you know, story so far, his narrative so far, is repeated as a photo negative in Absalom. So it's almost as if the author is saying to us, 
David's king, David's fall had real consequences. And the kingdom absolutely, the people absolutely suffered because of it. And what we looked at in the first bit of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel that was positive, that we were excited about, that David did, now we see the ex- God doing the exact opposite in Absalom. So it tells us immediately, this is judgment. That's what it tells us. Because we had the good feeling about David at the end of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. But now we see the exact opposite in Absalom. And we go, well, there's no other conclusion we can draw, but that this is the judgment of God coming upon David's kingdom. Okay, so then there's, there's that. But now there's how David's story parallels actually a lot of things that happened in the book of Genesis. Um, taking Bathsheba, we talked about last week, was an Adamic sin. That is a sin like Adam, an Adamic sin. Um, and so David is, is more or less seizing that forbidden fruit, another man's wife, breaking of a commandment. And David is what happens to him. He is driven out of the city of Jerusalem, which is the capital. The, the city of Jerusalem is presented to us as the Garden of Eden. It's the place where God is actually dwelling in the, the uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant as it's there. Remember, we saw that at the beginning of first, the, the beginning of 2 Samuel. David is dancing because the presence of, of Yahweh is actually there, similar to the Garden of Eden, where Adam enjoys that kind of fellowship with the Lord. So David sins in this sort of Adamic kind of way where he reaches out and he grabs the forbidden fruit of another man's wife and takes it for himself. And what happens to him? But he's driven out of the garden city of Jerusalem as a result. Uh, So then what happens next? Well, the curse of David's house works its way out in a sort of Cain and Abel rivalry between Absalom and Amnon, which leads to Absalom's exile from the land. So Absalom reaches out, strikes Amnon to the ground. Now, Amnon is no uh, able. Let's be clear about that. He's, a, he's not innocent by any means. However, what resulted in David's sin, obviously, then is this sort of Cain and Abel uh, strife, which then leads to Absalom's exile from the land. And then we get this sort of what stands in the place of this like flood judgment in the middle is where, where God is clearly judging um, these two sins coming together. Uh, David's kingdom um, is torn asunder and he's driven away from the land. He is, uh, he, 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 he's not even on the throne. His people aren't even listening to him. So this sort of stands in the place of God taking his appointed king and the kingdom that he represents and really Bringing it to ruin, um, I think all of us could probably say that if a king is deposed or is taken off the throne, we would call that a coup, wouldn't we? And we would say that represents a kingdom that is in tatters, that's torn, that is fragile. Um, Probably most of us, I don't mean to get too political here, but Probably most of us looked at the little uh, Chaz zone in Seattle and thought to ourselves as we were watching that happen, man, 
if that were to spread across the country and that were to become more the norm, oh my goodness. I mean, this, that's, that's an overthrow of the entire country, right? Uh, I don't, maybe we probably didn't think of it that seriously, but, or take it that seriously, but if that multiplied, sure it could be, right? So what is that for David's kingdom when he is, has to flee from his land and he doesn't even have the throne and, and doesn't have the, the people? That's a judgment. And that stands in that place of that sort of flood judgment on God's initial kingdom there in Genesis. So then David is presiding over this divided house, much like Jacob did. Uh, David also lost control of his sons, just as Jacob lost control of his sons. Now you remember uh, Reuben, oh, sorry, you probably didn't get that. Let me go back. That's divided house. And then, no, just divided house. Okay. Um, Reuben, who is the first son, lost his position by a sin against his father, taking his concubine. It was a sexual sin. Reuben took his father's concubine and lost his position. And then the next two, Simeon and Levi, were cursed because they slew the circumcised brothers in the city of Shechem. Remember, they committed this great evil and uh, slew the, the, the brothers. Judah is the fourth son and Judah becomes the preeminent among his brothers and is appointed to the throne. Um, when the dust clears in David's family, we have Solomon, the fourth son, and true Judah uh, remaining also on the throne. So we see this sort of unfolding of David's kingdom and ultimate where we're going to see really kind of the conclusion of David's life leaves off in very much of uh, or a very similar way to uh, to where the book of Genesis leaves off after the fall of Adam. And uh, we see how his children uh, then end up establishing sort of, I guess, a, a kingdom, as it were, or God creates a people um, through Judah, the son. And, and we have at the end of David's life, Solomon, the true Judah, uh, sitting on the, the one that remains on the throne. Um, so there's this, there's these patterns that have developed both in, uh, David's story and how it relates to Absalom, but then also in how David's story and his sin and his fall relates to the story of Genesis or the, the really the rest of the old Testament text. And so the biblical writers are putting this forward to us to help us understand that what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. Those two creators do the same thing the same way twice, helping us to understand that God is establishing his kingdom. And these things that are happening to David are not just coincidence. They are the judgment of God, just as it happened in Genesis. Look, similar things happened to David, just as they similarly happened in the past. Now, it's no wonder then when we get into the book of Matthew, why David, sorry, Matthew will say on a number of occasions, this fulfills what was spoken by the prophet. And then it will be some random thing that when you read the prophet, you go, I'm not even sure the prophet was even talking about the Messiah there. As an example, Hosea 11.1 is a a passage that, um, that starts off, or Hosea 11 is a passage that starts off with uh, Hosea recounting 
the story of the children of Israel. And he says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And he's calling Israel God's son. And God called them out of Egypt. Remember, out of the bondage of slavery through Moses and yada, yada. Well, Hosea is just recounting the story of the children of Israel. But Matthew brings it up and he says, when Jesus went down to Egypt and came out of Egypt, he says, this fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, here we have the literal son of God literally being called out of Egypt when in a dream an angel appears to Joseph and says, those who sought to take the child's life are dead. Go, go away, which, by the way, was a quote of something he said to, uh, something God said to Moses back in Exodus. And so Matthew says this fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet because Matthew's looking at the Old Testament, very similar to the way Old Testament authors looked at the Old Testament in that God's pattern of behavior in the past is evidence of his hand currently working in the present. And so Matthew is telling us, We know that this person is the actual son of God because look at how his life patterns the Old Testament. Look at how he fulfills all that Israel tried to do and failed. And so in Matthew, I've said it a number of times from the pulpit, what do we see see Matthew telling us in the story that happens to Jesus after that? He goes out of Egypt. He goes through the waters of baptism. He goes into the desert for 40 days. And then he goes into the promised land and he proceeds to conquer the promised land with the gospel, preaching, first of all, from a mountain, right? In Matthew chapter five. So that whole story that Matthew is going through there is demonstrating Jesus is the new and better Israel. This is a pattern. This uh, We call this typology, but this is a this is uh, this helps us to understand the way God has worked in the past and apply it to the present to say he is still at work in the present. So when we look around at, let's say, current circumstances that we're surrounded by, uh, where it seems like every time you turn on the news, it's nothing but bad, that I can still say in all of that, man, God is still at work. He is still on the throne. Why? Because people are still being given over to their de- depraved lusts. And it's clear that God is, is, has his hand of judgment on America in some capacity uh, because of the way things are, are transpiring. These are very similar to the way God has responded in the past to nations that have done this, done these, committed these very same sins that we commit. And so, but then I can also say, if that's true, then I also know that, that as, as his people, we are, are, are safe so long as we are repentant followers of Christ. We're safe from judgment. Does it mean we'll die? Maybe. But does it mean that, I am, that eternal life is secure for me? Absolutely. That's the security that I have in Christ. And knowing that in the worst case scenario that fell on this nation, I am safe in the hands of God who is taking care of all of this. Why? Because I know what he has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. Questions?
all good? <laughs> you can open your microphones if you'd, if you'd like and ask them. Hey, my name is Sean. Yeah. This, uh, this is a good question. So <clears throat> this is all really interesting stuff. Uh, when you point out that uh, David's son Solomon, the fourth son, the true Judah, I mean, why do you say the true Judah at this point? Yeah, um, so we'll, we'll get it a little bit more into this as, as Solomon begins to build the temple. But, but um, suffice it to say that uh, the one appointed to the throne, the one appointed to rule, that would be um, the, the, uh, the one who has the scepter, the one who's going to be given the throne, um, is Solomon. That's really, at, right now, all I mean by it. So um, you remember in the, in the text, uh, I think it was last week in chapter 12, Solomon is born and God gives Solomon a name, right? And that, that indicates to us that Solomon is God's chosen one to be king on the throne. Absalom is making a play for the throne, or he's going to make a play for the throne in chapter 13 and following. He's going to make a play for the throne, but he's not the true Judah because God has not appointed him to be on the throne. Okay. That's really all I mean by it right at this moment. But what we're also... I don't understand. I don't understand what you're saying. Where, where does the true Judah come in? I mean... Ju- Judah, Judah meaning the one appointed to rule, right? So let's, let's define that first. Let's go back to Genesis. Think back to Genesis. Joseph is on his way out. I'm sorry. uh, uh, Israel is on his way out and he's blessing his children. And he says to all of them, he says to the first three, well, you forsook, you did this, that, and the other. And so you're not fit to rule. He gets to Judah and he says, the scepter shall not leave Judah. Okay. So, to, to be uh, Judah's heir, uh, you're the one who is appointed to be on the throne, all right? So when we get to Solomon, we find out of the family of David, you would think it would be Amnon. He's the first one born. Well, no, he died. Then you would think it would be Absalom. He tries to make a play for the throne. Well, if he was really the one appointed by God to come after David and rule, David would have died. Absalom would have remained on the throne. But Absalom doesn't. Absalom dies. And, uh, and so the one left that remains and actually ends up taking the throne is Solomon. Before Solomon takes the throne, Adonijah is going to try to gain the throne. The third son, Adonijah, ends up dying. So what we see then comes, becomes evident in the text is that uh, Solomon is the true rightful heir. That's, I guess, the way you would say that. He is the true rightful heir to the throne, even though he's the fourth, not the first, or the second, or the third, for that matter, uh, or the, the last one living. I mean, I guess technically he does become the last one living, but he becomes the evident rightful heir to the throne. So the true Judah, so to speak, would be the rightful heir to the throne. Um, so just as uh, when we say, think we, you'll hear terms like um, the new and better 
So I'll say things like the new and better Moses. Jesus is the new and better David. He's the new and better Adam. It means that all the things that were anticipated with that individual or that group of individuals actually were performed by this individual, right? So all the things that were hoped for in Adam, that he would spearhead the kingdom of God, that he would do so without sin, were actually fulfilled in Jesus. He's the new and better Adam, right? By faith, we become his children, so on and so forth. Um, So the same with Judah. Judah's expectation was to rule. Solomon's expectation was to rule. David's expectation was to rule. And yet he fails. Jesus becomes the new and better Judah, the new and better Solomon, the true version of all of those, um, that he actually does what those were only anticipating or hopeful of doing. Does that make sense? Uh, I think, you know, that's one reason why I wanted to spend a little bit more time on typology and just these sorts of biblical theology, because this is where your depth of insight into the scriptures will grow the most is in biblical theology is when you start to understand how the biblical writers are putting together this narrative and showing to you what Jesus has actually done, um, you will grow the most and you will, it will be uh, the most fruitful time of, of understanding as you begin to wrap your mind around what the Bible is doing here and the biblical authors are doing. However, it's also the hardest, you know, not coincidentally, it's, it's also the hardest thing to, to understand and wrap your mind around that, the, the biblical writers are not stupid. They are putting in throughout the text hyperlinks back to previous stories. You know, like, hey, you should really know the book of Genesis. Because if you did know the book of Genesis, you would pick up on some of these patterns that are happening here in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, you know, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, that kind of thing. So it's helpful to do. It's hard to do, but it's good to develop that terminology, I think, in our, our minds. Sean, I hope that answers your question, or at least begins to address it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was helpful. Thanks. Good, good, good. good. And I think when you talk about referencing other things, like even when you pull up to like De- Deuteronomy, you see with with Amnon and then with Absalom, they both commit capital offenses, and then their father doesn't carry through the punishment. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, so you, all of these things are just laid out for you. They're, 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 if, you, if you read straight through the Old Testament, it's the benefit of reading straight through the Old Testament. Early on, you get all this foundation. And then later on, you get people messing with the foundation or trying to mess with the foundation. Or you go, that's why David's at fault, because, you know, that's how I know David is being judged, because this happened in Genesis. That's how I know this. You start to make a lot of these connections. But biblical theology, looking at how the story is put together over the entire arc is really helpful. Good question. Anybody else? All right. Well, let's pray and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time to get together. Uh, this, obviously, studying scripture um, is such a delight and can be um, both shallow and deep at the same time. It can be a comfort to um, 
the young and immature, as we read and we hear of your love for us and we, we grow to understand that um, you love the world in such a way that you would send your son to die. That is such a comfort to us as young believers and old believers alike. But then there's so much depth to it as well that we could swim forever and never reach the bottom. And what a joy that is to explore and to understand and grow. And I pray that all of the things that we have done tonight and all the things that we, we have done in the past and will do, will continue to do, uh, Lord willing in the future, will be for our growth and understanding, but that it wouldn't just be empty knowledge, but it would drive us ever more to the text of scripture where we see the beauty of your majesty and your glory on display there for us. We are grateful that we can trust the word that's in front of us, knowing that it is inerrant and infallible, that it is able to reprove us and train us in righteousness, and that it is worth our time and attention. And I pray that as we study it, as we investigate it, you would reward us in that endeavor in giving us wisdom and insight, depth of knowledge, and a love and appreciation and a joy for being called your children. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.